Morris, and you are about to embark on the next Pioneer Knowledge Services Because You Need to Know, a digital resource for you to listen to folks share their experience and knowledge around the field of knowledge management and nonprofit work. Hi, my name is Dr. Steph Johnson, and my most fantastic job or work experience is my current job working at the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University in Houston, Texas. The last book I read was The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone by Heather McGee. Um, I am the author of the book, Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. I had several amazing mentors. Most people have hopefully been lucky enough to have at least one. I had a mentor, uh, two mentors in college, Susan Murphy and Ron Biggio, who I'm still friends with today, and a graduate student uh, mentor, Bob Duboy and Mickey Hebel, all of whom just have made my life so much better. I love spending time on the beach and I am inspired when I'm writing. Where exactly are you in Texas? In Houston, Texas. Wow, isn't it hot? It's beautiful and perfect. And if I had my choice, I would always be hot. Like I, I hate being cold. My joy in life is feeling like so hot that you're like, oh my God, it's so hot, I'm gonna die. Like that feels perfect. <laughs> So are we talking jungle type hot or desert kind of hot? I would choose jungle over desert. Wow. Yeah, I want it All steamy, right. like hot yoga, <laughs> but everywhere you go. So where did you find this pathway? I know in your book you talk about things that help steer you or steer people, but opportunities that come about. What were some of the significant opportunities that came to you as a young person trying to find your way? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think I had a, some teachers in my early education who were really special. I had a, a yearbook editor who's, his name is Steve Slagle, um, who I still keep in contact with today, who I feel like just saw an ability for writing in me that he ah. said, you should lean into this. And that was huge for me. You know, in the, when I was in high school, the internet was invented, yeah, that's what I heard, which yeah. It was a big deal. Um, it allowed me to learn, you know, obviously everyone today can do this. If you just want to know about something like what are career paths, yeah. different jobs I might take and what do those jobs pay or whatever. You can just look it up, right? right? Before the internet, that wasn't the case. My parents didn't go to college. I don't know that they, you know, had a huge breadth of yeah. knowledge about what are different career paths and majors and things like that that you could yeah. do. And so it was only thanks to the invent of the yeah. internet that I was able to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was in high school, I took a psychology class that I loved. I thought, this is, this is great. I want to do this. And so I was in the psychology book. It says you can go to the APA, American Psychological Association webpage. And so I used my <laughs> dial up, you know, do you yes. remember this? It made terrible sounds at me. And then. I got onto this webpage and I learned about different areas of psychology you could yeah. study. I chose industrial organizational psychology. I wanted to study leadership. The only avenue for opportunity to find out what you don't know pre-internet was there used to be encyclopedia salesmen that would come around yeah. and sell, and, yeah. right? And then, and then people would be like, oh God, we've got the whole encyclopedia right here. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you could just look up stuff. and and But it was 
static. You know, yeah. uh, printed material becomes static as soon as it hits print. The dynamic uh, relationship we now have that people don't even think about now that did not exist 50 years ago is incredible. Yeah, you're right. I mean, but it's more than just the knowledge is static. It's the, and maybe now more than in the 90s, but yeah. you can search and not know what you're looking for. Yeah. Whereas in the encyclopedia, you, you'd have yeah, to. Unless you just randomly open up a page and started reading. Yeah, yes. that's true. Yes. And I don't know, this must be like terribly not interesting <laughs> for anyone who's born after 1985. But, you know, for me, that was huge. I feel like people today have much more access to information and you know what opportunities are out there. But without that, you're stuck in the life that you were born into, right? If you don't know what other places you can go or you know, what are the things you can explore? It's the undigital class system, right? You, you've got your lot in life. Yes. Let's talk about digital equity, right? Yeah. Digital access equity. Do you forecast a time when that will just be not a right, but it should be a the, the access to clean water, clean air, and internet? Because there's a lot of countries that still have tight pipelines yeah. to access, you know, to get there. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I don't know that we can even say that people across the globe have fair access to water that's clean and clean air. And lots of countries have access to internet, but block it and limit people's ability to learn and explore to keep control mm. over them. But if I got to have the magic wand, you know, I would definitely ensure that everyone has access to obviously those basics of water and air and internet but also education. Hmm. For me, that was the big game changer in life was I got this amazing college education. I went to a small liberal arts school called Claremont McKenna College. You know, I had these 14 person class sizes. I don't think everyone needs 14 person class sizes, but wow. I can never underestimate. Well, maybe I can never overestimate. I don't know what a huge impact. Well, yeah, had. either way. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 It's just, I mean, it's life changing. It, it is. I, I totally agree. My history was, I was military and ended up going to college just because I got money to go to college. I never had a yeah. intent to go to college. And then look at you now. Now yeah. you're obsessed with knowledge. <laughs> exactly. More, more knowledge. More. <laughs> some of those folks that have a negative spin on education of late in some discourse about, oh, higher ed, higher ed is so, you know, I, I just don't get where the position is where there's a fear of people going to college. I, I don't understand that. Is, is that I something know. you see too? or I, I mean, definitely. But I will tell you, so whenever I hear that rhetoric, yeah. I always look that person's resume up. Mm. And to date, I have never found any of those people who are in positions mm. of power criticizing mm -hmm. higher education who didn't themselves have like the best <laughs> degrees. Like, no, no, y'all don't need education. I mean, I went, I got an MBA from Harvard and I did my undergrad at Dartmouth, but you <laughs> don't need the liberal agenda. Get that, that indoctrination. Yeah, no, you don't no, need no, to be no. indoctrinated. Yeah. Like, and I think it's like, you know, similar to limiting information through the internet, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's limiting access to information that could actually improve people's lives. Maybe, you know, the fear is that might change their political affiliation or stance because mm. folks would have more and maybe it wouldn't, you know, and maybe it changes maybe. people the other direction, you know, 
from liberal to conservative, conservative to liberal. But yeah. point is like, if people are going to make decisions, wouldn't you want them to have all of the information to make decisions for themselves? Well, you would think, wouldn't you? You would think, uh, unless you, you think. don't want them to have all the information. Well, let's go down another path on where you're at now. So that organization you're now the director of is all around leadership. So tell me what leadership is. So let's talk about what good leadership looks like or positive leadership, I yeah. should say. What exactly is the essence of what that organization is all about? The Dewar Institute for New Leaders was created to help build better leaders, specifically at Rice University, which is where the Institute lives. Um, John and Ann Dewar were alumni of Rice. And so they funded this institute so that students could have more access to develop themselves as leaders. And that's really what we do. We give opportunities for students to practice leadership, to learn about themselves as leaders, to develop a leader identity. That's like, I see myself as a leader. Yeah, I want to bring this up because on the mission page for your organization, it says, we do not define leadership for you. You create yes. your own definition and strategy to become the leader you wish to be. That's right. Yeah. That sounds pretty open-ended. I know. <laughs> huh? We just couldn't come together on a decision. <laughs> I think you know, people talk a lot about authenticity in leadership. So for me, yeah. you know, my approach to leadership as a scholar, you know, I've studied charismatic leadership and inclusive leadership. I think if I were to define the way that I approach leadership as a leader, it would be servant leadership. Like I believe that mm -hmm. leaders and their job is to empower their team and develop their team to be the best that they can be. Right. There's lots of other things, management, strategy, all important. But for for me, leaders, it's about developing people. What you're saying resonates to me because it is a personal attribute that just like education needs nurtured. Yeah. You need to practice. You need to, you know, make mistakes. You need to stink for a while before you can start <laughs> figuring out. I mean, really, I mean, nobody just walks in dun, da, 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 and got the cape on and yep, I'm natural born yeah. leader. Yeah, absolutely. But people think that's true. People I think know. natural leaders. Yeah. Why? You know, I think there's evidence that some attributes of leaders are genetic. So like, twin studies, you take two kids that are identical twins or fraternal twins that are raised separately or raised apart through adoption. Yeah. And then they compare their correlations of, do they grow up to be leaders or how smart they are, how mm -hmm. honest they are. So you can estimate the genetic component of leadership. And there is, you know, maybe it's 40%. And some of those things are like, being a man statistically makes you more likely to be a leader. So that's part of the genetics. Being extroverted doesn't necessarily make you more effective as a leader, but it does make you more likely to raise your hand to be a leader. Uh, being tall. So like there's genetic junk. I'm three for three. Good. Oh, there, you're actually a male, <laughs> tall extrovert. That's amazing. <laughs> but even if it were more than those yeah. aspects of leadership that were born. I think that people want, like, it's easy to believe that leaders just happen to be, but like, if you've ever had a bad leader, which everyone says, like, yeah, I've had a bad leader, then you have to see that people end up in leadership roles that shouldn't be yes. there. And maybe they got there because of those genetic aspects, but it's really about the development part. It's the other 60% that 
differentiates successful leaders from derailed leaders. Leadership is a huge bucket to talk about. I come from a military background and the military yeah. is all about leading and developing that muscle because it all comes down to the people in your organization getting stuff done. Your idea of the genetic structure or the genetic traits that get passed along, your rearing as a child, you know, those types of yeah. things that either have confidence building attributes or not, because like you say, with the twin studies, you could have the same structures, but in different environments may have some different outputs. What would be the first step or how do you, you get a freshman in, right? To your organization. So where do you start them as a baseline? Uh, it's, Uh, (laughs) It's a good question. So we also, in addition to letting people define leadership in their own way, because I might love the servant leadership model for myself and it works for me because that is authentically what I believe. But if you don't believe that and someone just tells you being a leader is about serving others, you might be like, Mm, it's inauthentic, right? So maybe you think it's charisma Mm. and you want to razzle dazzle people. That's fine. (laughs) In the same way, we let students build their own path. Mm -hmm. We don't tell them step one to being a leader is you join this many clubs. And so they get to choose and, you know, we have a suite of offerings that they can opt into, but they choose. Um, We have classroom style. We have group settings to do development. We don't, prescribe to the students what to do but if i were a freshman that's what i would do yeah then you kind of do accomplish two things at once you get to know people and And... develop your leadership and then we have one-on-one coaching Hmm. but even within say the one-on-one coaching students get to lean into whatever coaching goal they really have it could be i want to work on my presence or public speaking or delegating or whatever and we give them assessments they get feedback and they get to develop what they think is important for them. You know, I get the idea of letting have some self-agency in how they pursue this, but not everybody's clear on where they think they should go, or maybe they need challenge, right? Somebody needs to say, whoa, whoa, have, you know, push them a little bit, right? That's that's yeah. my style yeah. of leadership. You know, I, I see where you're finding some resistance and it's like, oh, you need to push through that. Because these learning experiences is all about challenging themselves to develop, right? So if if you let them steer their own course uh, 100%, it's like uh, you may not have reached the maximum you could have. No, that's true. And I I think that's why we use coaching so often. Coaches are letting people set the course, but not necessarily the distance. Ah, And so they're pushing people to, Mm -hmm. to really leverage this opportunity to grow. But everything you said, it's pretty interesting because that's the whole basis of our philosophy. It's it's like self-determination theory, but it's essentially that if you put someone in a setting and say, you need to develop your listening skills and here's how you're going to do it and here's your timeline, they're actually less engaged and they are less effective. Like they grow less than if they set their own I get course. Yeah. Because if you're told what to do, you're not engaged uh, on a core level because it wasn't part of your decision. Yeah. So what you had no you had no say in it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are passive learners, especially now. We're used to information being spoon-fed to us. Like I don't have to even decide what I'm going to read. I can just open up an app and it gives yeah. me stuff. Just here have some. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I then know you're just, not hungry, but look at it. Just I know, just keep just looking. Give, <laughs> give it a nibble. <laughs> yeah. 
that's all you need. You need LinkedIn, right? I mean, there's so much stuff out there. I know. Uh, I wasn't going to name a, a social media platform, but that is what I was thinking of. I opened my LinkedIn to see what I yeah, should be sorry. reading right now. But if I actually had the agency, you know, I said the last book I read, The Sum of Us, mm-hmm. that's something I really wanted to read. I really it was like, oh, that sounds like an amazing book. And I would say I remember so much more of that content and it's been integrated hmm. into my yeah. worldview more than the crud that I watch in two minute videos all day. The experience of going through undergrad and in graduate school, the difference to me was monumental. I could see why people go for a master's degree because you are fully flipping engaged. Yeah. You're just like versus undergrad, which is like not. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk engagement. How do organizations engage? a diverse workforce with the diversity as an intent when regionality produces not much diversity. So where you live. So, I mean, there's, there's so much there that I don't know that I could answer that in less than a dissertation, but um, <laughs> just give me the executive question. summary, I'll, please. I'll just pick one direction. So, okay. you know, first, I think it's important to say, throw out a fact that people, first of all, are more engaged in a diverse workplace. So if you just measured diversity and then looked at engagement, people are more engaged when they work in groups that mirror the population, when they're more diverse. We want to be around difference. Even though birds of a feather flock together, we're all going to choose a mentee who looks just like us. People feel greater engagement, energy, excitement in the workplace Mm. when it's diverse. Does it matter the organization, class of work, does does any of that matter? I don't... I'm thinking blue collar. Is there anything that says, eh, it doesn't really fit here? Uh, or is it just everywhere? I think everywhere. I mean, it's like this, it's like feels counterintuitive, but I don't know that there's ever been a study that showed, unless, I mean, it's not that everything's roses, like working in a diverse group yeah. can also create more conflict, but conflict is good. As long as it's like work related can conflict. can be good it can, can be good can, can be good as long as it's not personal conflict it just reminds me of this study that i read it was on blockbuster movies you know theater mm-hmm. big budget mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. and the study started with saying that movie actors are really not very diverse like if you look at most movies they're pretty homogeneously white non-hispanic you know heterosis mm-hmm. like all the whatever you think of mm-hmm. as the majority men and women and then they looked at what movies grossed the most profit and it was actually casts that were more diverse oh that's interesting and so it's like you think well why why do we choose these homogenous movie casts and it's like well those are the people that fans mm-hmm. want to see and it's like actually mm-hmm. you might think that but people want to go to movies with casts that reflect society right i think it's the same thing it's like it feels like well why would people want to work in more diverse areas? Like, why wouldn't you want to? It's more interesting, more creativity, more innovation. You know, are, is it possible there's a situation where it's not true? Like, sure, you know, if there's like, mm-hmm. if I think on a global scale, I can imagine there's huge cultural or religious differences that might make some aspects of diversity difficult. Yeah. But then your question wasn't like, does diversity relate to engagement? It was like, how can you engage a workforce that's diverse? And it's like, well, you're already halfway there because you have a diverse workforce. And then you need to recognize that when you have a diverse team, the goal isn't to treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like give people what they need to be successful. Recognize, wow, we did a great job bringing in diversity. Diversity is good. 
we should see and recognize that diversity and give people what they need based on that diversity to be successful. And that's where you get the engagement and the high performance. 17 years old, going through basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia, multi-diverse group of people all pummeled into one bucket of you're all the same. There is nothing different about anybody. And race was definitely not floated as a differentiation because you're all the same. You're you're all the same. Yeah. I reflect on that quite often because there is such focusing on race as the distinction of humanity that once you pick a side, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like such a divisiveness. Once you get into that, race and origin and all that can be as prominent as you want to make it. Yeah. But if it becomes disruptive, it's not helpful. Yeah, I think those are you know like I mean? I mean, the is two that... most extreme yeah. opposite okay. statements that you can make. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the military doesn't see any differences between people. You're not a, a woman, you're a Marine. The official language is English. You yes. know, you're all wearing green uniforms. Yes. You're all, you know. It's and just, then yeah. is there a point where it's there can be an over-focus on every, where our races make us totally different? Yes, to both, right? And, <laughs> <you know. laughs> All right, so where's the optimal? Well, how do you get to the optimal? So, you know, I think that's actually what Inclusify is all about. It's the idea that inclusion is driven by two basic human needs. This is the book that I wrote. One is uniqueness. So I don't actually want to wear all green, have my name be soldier <laughs> all the time. And in fact, you know, I think the military, I've worked several different branches of the military in the last few years, is actually turning away from that a bit because they're having trouble recruiting top talent, retaining top talent. Mm -hmm. uh, soldiers of color are leaving the military because maybe in part because of that de-emphasis mm. on uniqueness. But the other half, uniqueness is the one, you know, the left hand of the two basic essential human needs. The other one's belonging. If you say you're actually 100% different, you know, you're not the same at all. Well, then you can't get that sense of belonging because we want to be unique, but only to the optimal point where yeah. we can still be part of a group. So what's your top advice? Oh, great guru of organizational structures. <laughs> what is your great advice to mid-sized organizations that are either looking at this for the first time or a little nervous about going down this path? Of diversity and inclusion? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it's hard to say without knowing all the information, but if your organization is not very diverse to begin with, it will be because I think if you're going to attract top talent, it's going to be diverse based on the racial and gender makeup of the United States. If you're not there, that's I think that's fine. But what you can start working on internally is that feeling of inclusion, because even if people were the same, relatively homogenous along certain identities, like maybe people usually look at race and gender, you probably have diversity in there around age, maybe sexual orientation, geography, education. And so you can start implementing practices to bolster inclusion so that difference is valued and welcomed and celebrated. And so that as you build and grow other layers and aspects of diversity, those folks have a soft landing, a nice place to go where they're welcomed and not excluded. You know, they're included because that's mm -hmm. the culture. So, you know, you can't just say, oh, let's just make it the most inclusive, 100% white male organization on the planet. That's like, 
not that great. But I, I have the same kind of, and I'm assuming here that I have the same kind of feeling towards organizations that will not manage their knowledge well, that organizations that are like, uh, not for us, we're not doing that. They'll eventually go the way of the dinosaur. And, you know, hey, you're just not going to prepare yourself for future proofing your organization in a smart way. That's, yeah, I mean, you nailed it. It's just not going to be possible to compete in a increasingly global marketplace without reflecting the population. You know, with change being like as rapid as it is today, research also shows that having a diverse team makes you more adaptive to change because you have people who see things from different perspectives, getting in people from different industries. This is my beliefs, I think, it's like the right thing to do yeah. to have racial and gender diversity. So we should just do it. And it's also just the right thing to do for business. Like it is, yeah. the data is pretty clear. You know, companies are more resilient, innovative, better performance, higher stock prices when they have diversity. When you talked about conflict, and I like to use the word friction because basically yeah. it's a rub, right? When you've got a rub, there's a friction. It's going to cause an effect, period. Do organizations think of this with a little friction as a side benefit because out of friction comes change i know evolution change you would think but no you know in my experience i feel like people think conflict and friction are bad words you know i worked a lot with corporate boards and fortune 500 you know how to add women people of color to your board and they're like well we have this like whole dynamic going one i know one board member uh chairman of the board said it's like thanksgiving dinner like you just want it to be oh geez oh my you know gosh. like you just want to get through the board meeting don't you wish you would have had a squirt gun or something <laughs> or a cork gun just to, like stop that just stop that that's ridiculous thinking i know well I, not to be judgmental but it sounds a little ridiculous it does right but it's like i mean for me thanksgiving dinner has a different goal than <laughs> managing multi-billion dollar corporation where you're trying to protect shareholder value by avoiding costly disasters you want people to fight like if people are not if everyone's like oh yeah let's just do that oh, it's like yeah, right. well now you wonder why people are shying away from the stock market today yeah. there's clearly a lot of reasons people are scared to invest so it, you use the word invest in the dollars and cents but is it a corporate's best approach to invest into diversity? Yeah. You keep saying about innovation and team interplay and, and all that sort of thing that that creates a new value chain, actually. It creates a new opportunity. So how does an organization invest in it other than if they don't have the, the resources, let's say a small or mid-sized mom and pop nonprofit doesn't have money to put a salaried person in charge of this program, how do they start to implement it? So in the, you know, largest Fortune 10 companies that do a good job on diversity and inclusion, they do have a DEI, usually a chief diversity officer. The ones that are doing it well always say the CEO is the chief diversity officer. Because uh... if the CEO says we're going to do it, we're going to do it. If it were important, the CEO would care. And so if you're a mom and pop shop, you have a chief diversity officer. It's mom and pop. Yeah. Those are the people who create this change. And so I think it's like, you have to figure out, start with why, 
a great book start with why <laughs> to say like okay so we've decided to do this why like let's tie it to our core values you probably have a core value around people around innovation around serving our customers yeah. tie this emphasis on diversity and inclusion to other existing core values engage in the rhetoric like you have to say it set some goals where you want to go and then come up with strategies for how you're going to meet those goals and then just say it keep doing it over and over and over again stop doing things that don't work add new strategies if you need them how do you approach I, I know there's no easy fix you, you keep talking about reflecting your organization should reflect your environment and the the people in it but if it's 92 percent white and i'm sure it's maybe reverse in highly urban areas where it's opposite how do you get that diversity to come in maybe there's a comfortable less comfortable factor where people are like oh, i'm not moving out there with all them people. you know what i mean I, how do you how do you get them yeah how do you cross that border? Okay, so it's not always easy, right? But that's, <laughs> that's, but that's business. That's like, business, if you're yeah. like, so we have a really small market share in our town, do you say, oh, oh well, we just have yes. to have a small market share? Or do you come up with strategies to grow your market share? Okay. Even if it's maybe we got to move locations, maybe we open another mm -hmm. location. I think it's the same thing. It's not always easy yeah. 15 16 years i lived in boulder colorado it's like it gives rural pennsylvania a run for its money <laughs> on homogeneity and it was hard to recruit i'll just say like diverse yeah. you know faculty of color at the university but come on it's 2022 so things you can do it's... remote work like it doesn't work if you are literally a mom and pop shop so if you have like a you know a storefront you need people in the in the store but mm -hmm. Most businesses, I would say there's a way to get creative about remote work. You're going to need to do it anyway, because millennials and Gen Z are just like not coming back to the office. Sorry, Twitter. It's like not <laughs> happening. I talked to all of them on the planet. They're not going back to the office 40 hours a week. So we're going to need to find new ways to work and the ways to work that really work for everyone. And if you have that, then you can actually hire people from outside of rural Pennsylvania because it's remote. They can travel in, you know, there's other layers of diversity. It's easy to say, like, we're never going to be able to recruit, you know, the 13% of our employees are not going to be black as the mm -hmm. uh, U.S. population. Or I think, I don't know what the percentage of Hispanic and Latinos are in the U.S., but mm -hmm. it's, you know, you could say that's just like not going to happen, yeah. but there's. It's really just setting up yourself for success and staying in the parameters you're able to affect, but at least take some action. Yeah. And and probably for the most part, raise awareness. For sure. Yeah. You know, you can set goals around like, let's look at our competitors in this area and what levels of diversity they've been able to achieve. And that's a good reality check. Mm. If you're like, it's just not possible, but the shop next door is more diverse than we are. So it means it is possible. Oh, yeah. You just have to ask them their strategy. You know, that, that brings up an easy business intelligence kind of a poll you can do, you know, for those folks that say, oh, you, well, you know, we're never going to get uh, folks of color to move into this area or something like that. Just take a sample around other organizations just to see if or not and, and just yeah. uh, do a little pulse check. And I would say like you're it's probably true if you're a really homogenous town that you're not going to be able to get a stranger to come in, but you might be able to get a friend. Hmm. Look at your network. And if your network reflects your very homogenous town, that's on you because 
your network can be bigger than your town. And so expand your network. That's like a really simple today challenge that everyone can do is go to trade association meetings or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever's the reality for your line of work, conferences, work on expanding your network, go to the women's employee resource yeah, yeah. group at your conference, go to the black at, go to the Hispanic and Latino, the Asian Pacific Islander. <laughs> oh, and people are like, well, yo, what are you doing here, Edwin? And then you're like, listen, my company's expanding. Oh, we yeah, want to hire, yeah, we want to yeah, be yeah. able to hire the very best talent out there. I don't know the very best talent and I want to. And then if you form relationships with people, I think it's a lot different to say to your friend, listen, I know we don't have a lot of diversity mm -hmm. in the town, in this org, but you know yeah. me, this is a safe place. That's usually the bridge to safety, right? Is a connection, some sort of feeling yeah. of camaraderie, yeah. trust. Yeah, I mean, think of in the military, you get stationed all over, right? If you get sent to Colorado Springs and you're used to be in a very diverse place, you just go because you know, even if there's, it's not as diverse as your mm. last place you were stationed. You know that you have your, I like, I want to say brothers, your, but like yeah. your brothers and sisters. That's the, yeah, exactly. Your team. Your personal network. Uh, to wrap things up, I would like for you to define two things for me. One, what is your definition of leadership? And two, what is your definition of knowledge management? Oh yeah. Usually for leadership, I define it as taking people on a journey to meet a goal that they want to meet. And so it's not just your goal, it becomes their goal. Dictators are um, not leaders. <laughs> no, not to my view, but you know, <laughs> people always disagree with me. They're like, oh, it's still leader. It's great yeah. leadership. I'm like, it's something. I just don't, for me, I, that's not my view of leadership. That's why we don't define leadership at the Door Institute yeah. because if you wanna say, dictators rock. I'm not going to stop you from that being your leadership style, but no. <laughs> I also don't really want to teach you how to do it. So, and then <laughs> knowledge management, that's a harder question for me, but I would say leveraging and utilizing existing knowledge to improve business performance, maybe even growing, utilizing and leveraging existing knowledge to build and grow future knowledge. Perfect. So what's your definition? Well, you know, like leadership, uh, there's so many ways you can go around it. So a knowledge management definition has to one, be kind of identified and, and aligned to the organization that it's sure. trying to define because knowledge to one organization or critical knowledge may be totally different from another organization. And there's a time element to knowledge. Also, there is validity and in, in, in all that as far as how valid it is or how useful it is. And all knowledge should not be kept. So knowledge management is the ability of an organization to maximize, and I like your word leverage, leverage that asset and create an asset stream of its knowledge. Oh, nice. Yeah. So organizations that don't do that or don't include others is in the same boat. They're going to be kind of drifting off and not being very yeah, successful. Excellent. It was amazing to chat with you this morning. Thanks for all your time. Yes. Oh my goodness, you rock. Yeah. Any other pieces of tidbits of Dr. Stephanie's wisdom that you would like to plant out in the world? I have this feeling that we in the, in the US, but also across the globe have just been through a really transformative experience as a collective with the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and Lots and lots of chaos, I, I feel. And I think, you know, we all have some scars from that. I really also see 
within that chaos opportunity. Because as we rebuild our companies and our teams and our nation, I think there's a way to rebuild it in, in a fashion that is stronger than it was before. And I think of the workplace and just really, can we not build a workplace that actually works for everyone and would be more robust to crises that come in the future than we were today? Those are my inspirational words of like, yes, a lot of the stuff super sucks. Mostly it's a lot of bad, but like through the rubble, I think there is opportunity in moving forward to use this as a chance for really transformative change. Life, uh, as most things, is an iterative process and that one affects the other and yeah. evolution continually yeah. changes everything. Yeah, we could keep chatting forever because I have so many things to say to that, but this was a really fun conversation. Thank you. You have just finished our latest Because You Need to Know, a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. Please join us on LinkedIn and find us at pioneer-ks.org.